Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. That is a symbol of La Vida Loca. Just to hold it for a second. Thank you. I won't give it back. Just kidding. Uh, it's the symbol of La Vida Loca to me. One of the best symbols. Because what it is, is the chain over his life. And even though he's got the Virgen de Guadalupe here. And I'm sure he loves God and his mother and everybody. Underneath, you can hardly see it, but it says, Perdóneme, Madrecita. Forgive me, Mother. He knows what's right and wrong, but he's caught in his life, you understand? He's in that web. He can't get out of it now. He has to do what that life demands of him. This is what it means to be in La Vida Loca. Once you're in that world, you have to do what it expects of you. You love your girlfriend, you love, you know, it doesn't matter. Even your kids. And I know this is hard, but even your own kids aren't as important as what you have to do for this life. So it's a perfect, to me, metaphor. The chain of La Vida Loca holding you into that world. So um, I wanted to bring that in because the new book, as you know, has this other cover. And this cover, you know, you can tell he's a vato. You can tell, you know, and he's got a little tatuaje, a little tattoo, so you know that he's from the street. But he's got something else. What does he have? And it changes everything. And I don't know how many of you guys can, uh, you know, have kids. I'm sure some of you do. But I know when I, my kid was born, I was um, in and out of jails from, you know, I was in the gang since I was 11. People know I was in drugs, um, all kinds of drugs, including heroin, to, from 12 to 19. Uh, I was, my last, you know, jail was in two adult facilities. I was in juvenile hall. I was in jails all over the place. But by the time that I was 20 years old, I, I was out of all that. But I wasn't sure that I can get, stay out until I held my baby in my arms. You understand how important it was to have my 20, my 12, I'm sorry, my newborn baby at 20 years old. And it made me want to change. You know what I'm saying? I made promises. I will always be there for this kid. You go through all this stuff. The sad thing about it is I didn't do a good job. And this is why the book is titled, It Calls You Back. Because once you're in that madness, especially if you're deep in the madness, and that's not for everybody, not everybody in the gang is totally into that, but you know what I'm saying, once you're in that deep madness, it will keep calling you back. And for anybody who's ever gone through heroin addiction, alcoholism, you know what it is that calls you back every day, all the time. You have to keep struggling within yourself. One of the issues that I had besides addiction was rage. I would rage when I didn't at least expected it. I didn't know that I had rage issues. I didn't understand. I had PTSD. You know, I was post-traumatic stress disorder. That's what they call it. I don't know. Those days, they didn't call it anything. I was raging, and I didn't know. Uh, some of you might know that I've uh, been married three times and lived with two other women, and I don't want to... It's not a bragging thing. I'm too failed to be bragging. But I 
couldn't hold relationships. You know what I'm saying? It was very difficult. And of course, I have to give credit to my current wife, who we've been married now for 24 years, almost 24 years, that she stood with, with me all this time. Anyway, it was a very difficult thing, and this is what this book is about. Always when it takes you when I'm a kid all the way to I'm trying to leave that life. And then this book starts when I'm getting out of jail for the last time. I'm hooked on heroin, but I'm going through my heroin withdrawals for the first time. And I'm making a decision, a crossroads decision that I'm going to leave the craziness. It's a very difficult decision. So what I want to do is read from that section first. I'm going to read, get right into it. Read the first thing that's in the book because I think it's very telling about where somebody's at. And it goes like this. You'll be back. These were the last words I heard as I walked away from the clanging locks and gates, the incessant yells and howls of the downtown Los Angeles County Jail. A sheriff's deputy taunted me with these words after I bailed out from being held on resisting arrest and assaulting police officers. If convicted, I'd do a minimum of six years in the state penitentiary. The year was 1973. The charges stem from the police beating of a handcuffed young Mexican woman lying on her stomach on the parking lot of an after-hours club. Several deputies were striking and kicking her as she screamed for help. The few drunkards around sauntered away. I was high on heroin, alcohol, pills. I used to like combining those, combining those damn things. I turned to walk away as well, but something in me wouldn't let me. At 18 years of age, I felt tired, lost, after having been forced to move away from my neighborhood in a, in a garage where I had lived in a small room with a piss bucket and a bunk and where I got high with street girls I called squeezes. I did something no true gangster would do. I tried to stop the beating. In the process, the deputies jumped me. I wanted to fight back, but I got laid out fast, flat onto the ground, maced and handcuffed. Before being taken to the Norwalk substation while immobilized, I was driven around a few blocks as two deputies punched me. I yelled, Pinchi Chota, you'll never break me, man. Or I thought I did. <laughs> I didn't really say it. Anyway, uh, that was my time that I had to make a decision. And I'm going to read to you about what that decision was um, because it's sometimes very difficult to do. And had to do with, oh, here it goes. Had to do with finally making a decision against the craziness. So, okay. All right. So let me read to you about some of the changes I was going through. My problem was that the gang life and drugs, as well as the political consciousness and artistic expression, were pulling me in widely divergent directions. For some reason, politics and art appealed to me more than I thought it would. Yet, although organizers in the Chicano movement tried to convince me to leave drugs in the gang, I didn't know how or if I could. I had turned my life and everything else I had over to the madness. My identity was so intertwined with La Vida Loca that any appeal to leave felt threatening. This is my barrio, I declare. I declare. I'll die for Las Lomas y que. Once, a short time before my last arrest, during the funeral of one of my homies, a neighborhood girl warned how I'd end up the same way if I didn't stop what I was doing. 
I can hardly wait to have a funeral just like that. I told her with a far off look. To have the mothers crying, the homies and girls missing me with all this love, that would be the best day of my life. I wanted to die in a blaze of glory. For the barrio, manacled to these dark streets, these dirt roads, these scrap homes, the marked up walls, but I wasn't dying. I kept getting close, but every time I somehow escaped death's grasp, just to keep going at it again. La Vida Loca was a web and a lure. Dudes tattooed the spider in this web or the cross with the three rays over it, signifying the crazy life, meaning you had to carry the cross of this life wherever you went. Today, this is represented by three dots in a triangle shape. You're caught. You can't let this go. I had to break the chains that pointed to three outcomes, pinto, tecato, or muerto. A prisoner, an addict, or dead. These were the three choices you inherited in La Locura. The three things a vato would expect. The trinity, three dots, no more responsibility, no more caring. All dreams, gone. That's what I was looking at. But something was happening already within me. Let me see if I can read this one section. So the dudes wanted to me to join the prison gang. And I was in the crossroads. And when you're in a crossroads, you have to make a decision. The reason why it's a crossroads is because all of a sudden, paths open up to you. And most of us don't pay attention. Or when we do, we keep choosing the wrong path. You know what I'm saying? But the opportunity to choose another path is there. And everybody's going to come across it. I came across it then, and I could have gone the other way, but I made a decision. Um, I yearned for another way to go. Unity not for crime or the drug trade, but for real social and economic change. This derived from the political consciousness I had developed and actions I had taken, including the East LA school walkouts in 1968, and more important, the 1970 Chicano moratorium against the Vietnam War. Prior to this, I had little imagination. The barrio, jails, drugs, and killings were the only concerns I knew and lived with. So Largo is my homeboy who was taking care of the kitchen for the prison gang. And he comes up to me and he's trying to get me to join the, the prison gang. And I'm saying no. And he's scared because he says, well, dude, I can't protect you, man. You can't say no. These people will kill you. I says, I, I, I just can't do it. I don't want to do it. So I tell Largo, Largo, I don't want to go that way. I told him the next time my homie hit me up to do things, like run contraband or stab somebody. The Crips were coming up. So in the holding tanks, all the Chicanos were supposed to be in there, and the trustees were coming with filetos, and you're supposed to stab Crips you know, as, as much as you could. And my attitude was I had no beef with Crips. I had no beef with no other barrios except my own barrios. Why was I fighting wars? I had no business. So I didn't want to do that. And so they were all worried. Largo tried his best to bring down the hammer with words and veiled threats. At one point, he said more out of concern than his warning, if you don't, homie, I can't do nothing to protect you. I responded more to make a political stand than to be confrontational. I'm not worried about what I have to do to be free. This includes some drugs from the life. Simon, I'm all for Rasa unity, but this is something else, man. I don't want to be part of this. Largo didn't know what to say. I walked away expecting the worst. Part of me thought I'd signed my death warrant. Rasa prisoners were harsh. They were the first to organize strategically for defense and protection. The first to establish the basic rules and methods of most prison gangs, regardless of race. They became the most organized, largest, and most ruthless of all prison associations. I reluctant, no, I'm sorry. 
to let them know I was no leva, even during last Malias when I was getting sick from the heroin, I was getting the withdrawals. I stepped out of my cell, not threatening or acting hard. I made my way to the day room. I wasn't hiding out, nor was I challenging anyone or playing martyr. I was making clear my position without being a pendejo in the process. Largo came up to me as I watched TV, sweat beating on my forehead, itches under the skin. What are you going to do, homie? He asked. I'm going to be a warrior for a new world, carnal. I responded as if my voice had been taken over by another person, sprouting a new tongue, energized by a new mind. I don't want any more body warfare or early suicide that only hurts our communities and destroys our brothers and sisters. Everybody wants to die for the barrio. How about living for the barrio? I want to finally do something different. That was my stance. And just to let you know, uh, before I left the county jail, uh, I was going to go to state prison, but the community stepped out on my behalf. They wrote letters. They came to the, to the judge. And they said, you know what, well, this kid done some bad things, but he's also done some good things. And the judge gave me a quebrada, gave me a big break. He gave me time served in the county jail. And then as I was walking out, uh, I thought these guys were going to get me. Following my release, I was allowed to get my property. On the way, on the way there, Largo and a couple of the locotes came up to me. For a second, I thought this is how they'd get me before I left as an example to others who dared to remove themselves from the sturdy net of La Vida Loca. Instead, Largo gave me what I was seeking, a way out with dignity. We're going to give you a pass essay, your walking papers, he declared. Go ahead and be this revolutionary, this Chicano. Do some good for the people. Some of us are too far gone to try, but maybe you can, homie. I know you've always been game for the barrio. Always feed me, but you also have something that many of us got. You got smarts, I say. You read books. You already know Chiba's not for you. Remember once in the neighborhood when I told you that? I know you've been making changes for some time. I've been watching you, the murals, the Chicano school clubs, all that pedo. This may not happen again, but for now you have a charge. Help the moros, the youngsters. Stay out of this life. Don't go both ways. Getting this pass means you can never walk this way again, me oyes? If you come to the county for any reason, if you are inside these walls, you belong to us. I understood. The blood in my veins understood. This was my first big break from the drug and crime matrix I had once been so eager to be entangled in. Yet as I walked out, without looking back, carrying what little I owed on my back and the words of my homie, it was the de deputy statement that rang in my ears. You'll be back. These words... Now a cliche, heard in movies and TV shows with actors walking away from pretend jails or prisons were at the same time a personal curse with my name on it, meant to dishearten and dis disassemble, meant to hold one of the stasis of the criminal world. A big part of me believed I would be back. The rest of this book is about that battle, not to go back. And it's been a very difficult battle. I'm not going to get into all the, all the what you get in here. There's a lot that happens. Um, I let go heroin eventually, but then I drank for 20 years. I, my son, who I thought was the best thing going, I abandoned him when he was two and a half years old. I abandoned my daughter. Um, I know you think that's terrible, and it is terrible. I failed my kids. I failed my families. Even though I wasn't longer in this life, 
it kept pulling me back. The drinking, the bars, and you know, I got politically active. I did things, I wrote, I did a lot of things, but I still was not, I couldn't let go of the madness all the way. And this is why it was important for me to begin to deal with this thing. Um, I'm gonna jump a little bit because there's a lot here and I don't want to go through everything. You're gonna have to read the book. But, <laughs> but I do want to talk about something that's very important to me that's part of this book. And it's kind of, um, I went through a lot of experiences. I ended up uh, taking part in uh, steel mills. I worked in steel mill to get out of the jails. I worked in foundries. I worked, LA was, is, is today, but even then, the largest manufacturing center of the whole country. And people, when they talk about the Rust Belt, they forget that we're part of the Rust Belt, even though we're not in the Midwest. We had steel mills, we had auto plants, we had you know tire companies, we had aerospace, and they all died in the 80s. And I was working that jobs, and and they were all going away. I had to find another way to live and I decided to be a writer. Again, what my homie was telling me, you love books, and it was true. Even though I was in the gangs and in the streets, I was homeless in downtown, I used to go to libraries and my old cholio, you know, all dressed like, you know, all cholo, and all the librarians following me to make sure I wasn't gonna steal anything, but I just wanted to read books. That really saved me. And so I became a writer. Uh, but then I had other issues. Um, when I became a writer, I even decided to go to Mexico and cover stories there. And I went to, took part in several uprisings, mostly indigenous uprisings, mainly in Oaxaca, uh, in a place called Uchitan and other places. I, ever, I ended up in Nicaragua. Then I ended up in southern Honduras. And I even got bombed twice in southern Honduras with the Contra Wars that were going on. So I was very fortunate, but I came back to the United States and I continued what I was doing. But I'm gonna get you into something that's also very harsh. Um, but I want to talk about it and then I want to open it up to you um, because this is the this was the hardest thing my family fell apart because of one thing my father I didn't talk about this when I was running but my father had molested my sisters he tried to molest my daughter and uh, he never messed with me or my brother because I think he didn't care for boys. I didn't know what he was doing. I was in the street, so my youngest sister had this terrible grievance against me because he says you were the only one that stood up to my mom and my dad and you weren't there. And I didn't know. I didn't know what was happening. And I took it very badly. My mom was very abusive, beating up everybody. This one incident where my sister, um, I was out of jail, I was 16 years old, but I wasn't at home anymore. So I was hanging in the corner and my sister and my mom walking down the street, my sister, she was 12. She came up to me so happy to see me, she hugged me. And I said, you know, hi and everything, but I kept going. She went back to my mom, my mom got her by the head and beat her up all the way home for coming to talk to me. And I didn't know this, this, this stuff comes later. Um, my youngest sister really suffered a lot, but she was one of the people that remembered uh, my dad's abuse. My other sisters don't talk about it. I'm, uh, I'm convinced they all got abused, but no, they won't say nothing. My youngest sister talked about it and they ostracized her. You know what I'm talking about. They put her down for standing up. Um, when I wrote this book, I decided to invite my family so I could tell them that I'm putting, putting this stuff about my dad in here. And they showed up about 20 of them. I thought they were gonna lynch me. Um, but they, some didn't say anything. Some went talked about other things, but I could tell it was really hurting them that I'm gonna write about this. Uh, the only good thing is that my sister from, my youngest sister, she's now in Idaho. She's not doing very well. She's got lupus. 
very terrible. And she's got some psychiatric issues. I don't really know what it is, but it is, but she takes meds. And when she had called, she, she was homeless in Idaho. And I was worried for her. I said, I'll send you some money. Why don't you come back to California? She didn't want to come back. Uh, I was going to send her some money. She's okay now. But anyway, she was in pretty bad space. But one thing she told me, don't let anybody stop you from writing this stuff. You have to write about it. She was very, very strong. So I told this to my family, and they pretty much kind of had to let it go. They don't want this to happen, but they have to talk about it. Anyway, I'm not going to talk about all the details, but I'm going to talk about the very end with my father because I hated my father. I actually tried to get a gun and shoot him. Um, I was living with a woman who at the time was uh, into therapy, so she helped me a lot um, to let it go, you know. And what I did is I ended up, you know, just hating him and not bothering with him. For 30 years, I didn't talk to my mom and dad. I mean, barely. Uh, it wasn't like never, but it was hardly. And then when my dad died, I didn't want to go to his funeral. I just hated what was going on, but something was eating at me all this time. So I'm going to read you uh, the very last thing that happened. I stopped wanting to waste my father, although my hatred toward him lasted for years. This part of my life has been the most painful to recount. I can't speak for any family members since they have their own ways of dealing with this. Yet I'm sure many of them would prefer this story never be shared, that the facts be buried, the incidents forgotten, the horror of living with pedophilia and other abuse pushed aside. But this is the chronicle of too many families, too many communities, particularly in our Chicano and Mexicano households, where people keep their mouths shut, the devastating bottle up and consequently healing cannot occur. To come out stronger from this, I had to go through these wounds. My father passed away in 1992 from a quickly spreading stomach cancer. He was in his early 80s. I was in Chicago at the time. I told my mother, although not anyone else in my family, why I wouldn't come to his funeral. She seemed to understand. At one point before my father succumbed to the disease, I called mom. My dad was at home, unable to speak, breathing his last. My mother requested that I say something to him, even if he couldn't respond. I didn't know what to say, although I heard his shallow breathing. All my life, I wanted another father. Yet as I recall, he brought books from home for me to read, even books I didn't care about. He showed me how to play chess, another obsession of his. And despite spending the hour, long hours away, he came home. Most of my young friends had no fathers. This was the only father I knew, the one given to me by forces vaster and more mysterious than I could ever comprehend. So I told him something he never told me. I love you, Dad. My mother said he had a reaction, ever so slight to my words. The next day, he was gone. And even though it's hard to imagine that I would do that, it actually healed me. It made me... Um, Forgive him and forgive myself. And that to me is what's important about this book. It is definitely about healing. I want to, one last thing I want to relate, then I want to open up to you, is that my own son got into gangs, as many of you know from what was running. He wouldn't let it go. I tried everything. I didn't want to throw him away like my parents had thrown me away. When I was 15, they threw me out of the house. I didn't want to do that. But it was very hard. I helped his friends, a lot of his homies. We changed a lot of kids' lives, but he wouldn't change. When he was 17, he started his first prison term. He ended up three different prison terms, all for violent felonies. The last one, he did uh, 13 and a half years. Total prison since age 17, 15 years. But I will have to tell you that my son 
decided in prison to change his life. And, and when he was in prison for seven years, he wrote me a letter <coughs> to say that he finally understood what we were trying to do with Always Winning, with, with the community, with the family. He also recognized that, you know, I've been on drugs and uh, drinking for 27 years. And I sobered up finally 18 years ago. And he, I think, saw that and saw me hang with it and he realized that he could change. And when my, way, my example in many ways was his example. So um, when he got released last summer, uh, he was clean and sober and no longer in gangs. He's in parole right now. I went to see him, he's in Chicago, they won't let him out of Chicago until he finishes his parole, which is three years total. I went to see him and now he's working with 100 gang kids turning their lives around. He's doing some really good work. I'm really proud of him. Um, he introduced me to these kids, and, and I talked to them. It was one of the best talks I ever got. Most of them are Puerto Rican kids because we were in a Puerto Rican community. He joined a Puerto Rican gang. His gang name was Mexico because, you know, there was Puerto Rican, so they called him Mexico. But anyway, uh, so we were dealing with the Puerto Rican gang kids, but they really were really open to us, and we had a great time. Um, I just want to end with... I asked them last year before this book got published to write something. And it again, it starts with me leaving jail for the last time, trying to get out of heroin and all this craziness, and it ends when my son gets out of prison. So in between, there's a lot of stuff going on. But I want to read you what he wrote. Um, because it's very clear, and it says a lot about change, which is really what I'm about. It says a lot about personal change, family change, community change, how important all of that is. So he's 36 years old now. He's a father to three teenagers. And um, now he has to deal with his own kids who are, and don't really care for him that much. Well, two of them do. One, his oldest son, he has three different women, so they, you know, they don't even get along. But <laughs> you know how it is. But uh, his oldest son is 19 and doesn't want anything to do with Ramiro, my son. And I don't blame him. I'm very close to my grandson, but he doesn't want anything to do with him. Because my my dad, his dad, my son, wasn't there for him. So I understand. I told my son, you know, you can't force it. your fatherhood, man. You can't force it. Fatherhood has to be earned, you understand? So now they, he understands, okay, I'm going to give it time. I'm not going to make a big deal about it. So in time, he'll see what you're doing. He'll see the good you're doing. But right now, he doesn't see you, and that's, that's just the way. That's one of the prices you're going to pay. He understands now. Uh, but I'm going to read you what he wrote. I've had over 13 years of psychological warfare. My mind has been a battlefield with many casualties, disconnections, reconnections, everything new. It feels good to see my kids, my family, and everyone who has supported me. It feels good to know that on this next journey in my life, I don't have to do it alone. This is a new journey for everybody. All the hardships, the struggles were not just my own. While I, did, while I did time, everyone else did life. As I stepped out the prison door and saw my family and friends standing in front of me, I didn't want to look behind me. Behind me was dissolution. In front of me was absolution. Now I'm going forward, taking advantage of all my support, not afraid to ask for help when needed. For too long, I was trying to do everything alone. I was selfish and weak, full of pain and full of pride, holding on to so much anger, never knowing what I was truly angry at. That's all over with. All that sadness and hurt, I want it to be gone. 
I look into my children's eyes and all I can do is smile. I wake up with a smile. I walk everywhere with a smile. I smile because I finally made it home. So those are the words of my son, Ramiro. And I think I'm going to end right there. <laughs> so... So I really want this dialogue because I think it's more important to hear from you. Um, again, there's a lot in this book. Whatever happened, always winning, it takes you through even more. 40 years of life in here, all the personal changes, to see my own son caught up in that mad web, go crazy himself, and then try to help him pull himself into some sanity. It's very difficult. Um, I know, I imagine some of you are caught up in a, a web, whether it's addiction, prison life, gang life, you know, uh, love relationships, there's a lot of webs that are not healthy for us. So it's about trying to live a healthy, wholesome life. And if you've made a lot of mistakes, you can still get there. It's very important to know. Um, you don't have to be broken your whole life. You can gather yourself, but it's going to take time. It's going to take struggle. It's not going to be easy, but it can be done. And uh, I work with a lot of people coming out of prisons. As some of you know, I've done this for over 30 years. Uh, one dude just came out after 28 years in prison. He's been out now two, two years. He's doing very well because we're working with him. We're spending time. Um, I just finished a book. Uh, I, I was going to bring it. I just finished publishing a book by a guy who did a total of 30 years. And he wrote his book. He's doing really good. He's now an associate professor in Northern California. So there are some stories of people who change their lives, but it is difficult. And anyway... You just got to hang in there, and you got to find the family and community that can help you take you there. So let me open up to you. Um, hear what you think, what you're saying. Again, ask me anything. I'll be as honest as I can in my answers. There you go. Do you, do you ever get together with other authors? Like, uh, there's another book I read, uh, The Black Hat. Do you ever get together with other authors? I do, but not him, not that guy. Um, there's a few people. Joe Lawyer, for example, he did seven years in prison. He wrote a really good book called uh, How, I, How I Outgrew My Prison Sound. It's a really great book. So I do meet people who are in that world, in that life, and doing good. Jimmy Santiago Baco is another great writer um, who did nine years in prison. Now he's a great poet. He's doing really good. There's not too many of us, you know, but we're, we're, we do know each other. We do meet each other. I, I don't, again, some people I don't get to meet, but I do get to meet some of these guys who have redeemed themselves. That's my concern, that people can find a road to redemption. Uh, because I think what happens is we throw away too many people. And we say they never can change, and that's not true. But unfortunately, if we don't give them help, resources, guidance, support, most of them won't change. Uh, I believe that they can change, but we got to also do our part. I also ask them to do their part, you know, but we got to do our part as well. Who else? Yeah. Well, um, I was reading my, uh, your book, I was writing to my little bud, mm -hmm. and um, there's this part where it was where one of your friends died with a mm -hmm. skylight. Yeah. And uh, my little brother asked me, well, what happened after that? Because it, it cuts off I know. the story. And like, I always wanted to know what happened. Yeah, it's my style of writing. <laughs> well, what happened is, um, well, you know, he fell to the skylight and killed himself. Um, they, to this day, somebody told me that that skylight has still boarded up from way back then. This is like 45 years ago, even longer. I mean, it's still boarded up. They never fixed it. Um, obviously, it messed me up. He was uh, my best friend. I was 10 years old. Um, he was really good at baseball, so I remember when they buried him, they buried him with a ball and a glove. 
It was really sad. Uh, I got so messed up about a year later I joined the gang. Because, you know, I was just didn't know where to go with it. I couldn't go to my dad, couldn't go to my family. I didn't have anybody. And a year later, I was ready for a gang. You know what I mean? I lost my best friend. Um, I had also got hospitalized that year, and that also messed me up. Uh, I almost died. I had a hernia. Um, and, my, you know, the sack of my intestines busted. And they, they had to take me to emergency. And, and I, I almost didn't make it. And um, they, put, they gave me all these drugs. And I think the drugs didn't help because I, I, I went to drugs after that more. You know, they give you all, I don't know what they gave me, what actually they gave me but it was like morphine and stuff I don't know what it was but uh, I was in a wheelchair for a while you know and then and then I started going back to walking but that messed me up so that 10 year old time was a very rough time for me um, a year before just so you know my sister stabbed her husband and that threw the whole family out they the landlord threw us out of the house uh, you know so I ended up so many things going on as a kid. So when the gang broke into the school, it was an elementary school, I thought they were the toughest, coolest guys. Again, they were all cholos. i never seen cholos before. They had sticks and chains and bats and homemade guns, and they were scaring everybody. And, man, I wasn't scared. I wanted what they had. Whatever power they had, I wanted it. I felt so broken down, so shy, so beaten down that when I saw this gang, I said, man, I want that. And, that, and that's what happened now. But it was the death of my friend that I think contributed to that. Yeah. Any chance of a ATC weekend special? Yeah, I know. Well, you know what? I've been working on it for 18 years. I'm going to tell you, and I, I don't want to put down anybody who's in Hollywood here, but <laughs> I, don't like Hollywood. I don't like Hollywood very much. I'm not saying there's not good people in it, but the thing with Hollywood, especially when it comes to um, uh, movies, is they want a guaranteed moneymaker. They don't think that our people are interested. And every once in a while you've seen some movies like, some movies have done well. La Bamba did pretty well, actually. Uh, Selena did very well. There's a few of our movies that have to do with us that do well. But most of the time they don't put money in it. Um, so the closest I got was uh, in 2008, we were going to do it finally. Uh, we got $3.5 million offer. Oh, I was so happy. I thought, oh, we're going to do it. And guess what? The stock market crashed. Remember October? So they pulled the money out. Oh, man, it was like, uh, you know, you can't cry about those things. You can't worry about it. You figure, well, it just wasn't this time. What I'm doing now is I'm working with some people to do it, uh, like webisodes on the Internet. I'm thinking of doing it myself. Yeah, and just do it on the Internet and get it going and build it up and maybe get a feature film out of it. I think so. I think I'm going to do that. I'm going to prove to people that we can do it. We're not going to hire big actors. We're going to go to to the barrios. We're going to find young people like yourselves who are interested in acting. We're going to teach them. We're going to use real people, and we're going to make it happen. Because I think it's a very good story. It just needs to be told right. You know. Yeah, definitely. If you go to my website, LuisJRodriguez.com, when this happens, we'll let you know. I don't have no uh, time frame. I don't know when, but I'll definitely let you know and get the word out, especially if if we want to look for young, young actors, and I'm not just not trying to get everybody. I want people who really love acting. You know how people just want to be on TV. This is not reality TV. This is people who really love to do the craft. That's who I want. You know, so uh, I will we'll keep you posted. Yeah. Uh, by the way, we're going to have audio books of Always Running now, and audio books of the new book for the first time. 
No, we got two uh, Chicano actors. One of them is uh, Jacobo Vargas, which you guys may not know. He's a great Chicano um, character actor. You don't know his name, but he's been in tons of movies. If you see him, you know who he is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a you know, character actors, you never know their names. But you see him in movies, oh, I've seen him 10,000 times. So he's one of them. So there's another guy doing TV, he's going to do the other one. Uh, when would that be ready? It'll be ready, I think, in a year. Another year. Yeah. Yeah. Who else has got questions or comments or? Are you writing anything new? Yeah. If I'm writing anything new, I'm going to be working on those treatments for the webisodes. I'm thinking of I got another book of poetry I got to do because I love poetry. I want to do short Chicago stories. I've lived in Chicago 15 years. I got all these stories. I got one book of stories called The Republic of East LA. I got a lot of great stories, but now I want to do one about Chicago. Chicago, by the way, so for you who don't know, it's got the second largest Mexican community after LA. It's got really great people, and I feel like I got to do some stories from Chicago, so I'm working on that. Uh, no, no, I'm White Sox. White Sox, yeah, 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 no, no. I'm south side, not, not north side. <laughs> Anybody else? One more question? Oh, okay. Um, you said that we have to do art part two. Yeah. And there's a lot of us that work with kids. I, had a, a, I worked at Roosevelt. Yeah. working with kids. And, you know, like you said, at that point, they're not ready to be work. Yeah. There's too much going on that those conversations aren't going to do a lot. Really? How can we help the older, you know, people that are coming out of jail or they're still Yeah. Well, well, here's what I do. There's, there are good organizations. Uh, Homeboy Industries is one. Homies Unidos is another. I do recommend kids to organizations that I know are going to be there. There is a need to do tattoo removal because some of these people are deeply tattooed and they can't get a job. We do have treatment. We try to get them treatment, drug treatment, psychological treatment, anything they need, jobs. We try, to get, we try to connect kids to a life that's meaningful and valuable for them. So that's a very important part of it. The other thing is that um, I, I do what I call, what's called walking with. I will walk with these kids through all their ordeals, including prison time. I've had people do 20 years prison time, and I walk with them the whole 20 years, beyond my own son, which I've done. I've been doing this for 40 years, so there's people that are still hanging in there. One kid just did 10 years, and uh, I walked with them for the whole 10 years. What walking with means is that you walk with them, you guide them, provide them resources. For the first few years, I tell you, you drop dead, you still hang in there. Eventually, they come to you. The one thing that I tell people, though, who do this, you got to be careful not to enable them. In other words, that you're not going to just do things for them. You do things with them. Here's a, the thing, for example, um, whenever I work with prisoners, I tell people, you got to give them books, give them guidance, give them letters, connect, but don't do three things. Don't give them money. Don't do any criminal activities. And don't romantically involve them. Those are the three things they always ask for. <laughs> Some of it is, not, is legitimate, but you know, the point is I just won't do that. I work with them for a healthy environment. 
and to let them know what a healthy environment is. And so you got to be careful not to, you got to cross lines almost, but not cross them. Uh, walking with them, not enabling them. You know what I'm saying? And the main thing that I do this is because I want to give them their own traction. I want them to build their own character around their own gifts. I want them to feel the discipline and the strength that they can do it themselves. You know, my recovery programs don't mean you got to go to meetings three, three times a week for the rest of your life. I'm not against that. That's cool. It saves people. But I want people to be able to walk in their own two feet, to get strong, and to not need me no more. That's my goal. You know what I mean? People, and I've, I work with so many kids in Chicago. We did so much work with gang kids that when I went over there, we had a light reunion, lightweight reunion with some of them. I didn't even know what they were doing. Some of them now have their own businesses. Some of them have families now. They're doing very well. Some of them going to college. One guy's going to be a professor. And he was a badass gangster. Shot three times in front of my house, you know. And, and now he's going to be a professor. So I believe in him, but you have to walk with them until they can walk on their own. See what I'm getting at? So that's how we do it. And it takes time sometimes, some less than others. Two years, some of them. Sometimes it's just a matter of a short time, then they're okay. They're walking on their own. Uh, sometimes you have to be there for the long haul. So. I'm politically involved, but not in electoral politics, in the sense that uh, I don't really endorse any candidates. People come to me, they want me to endorse them. I, realize, I, feel, I feel that I do better talking and speaking than to support a candidate. Um, I don't find most candidates, I'm not against any of them, but I, I find most of them are tied to some way with money and people, and I just don't, I don't feel that they re really, really represent us. I'm talking about our own gente. I'm not against them. Um, as some of you know, uh, Councilman Tony Cardenas is my brother-in-law. Councilman, Ellie Councilman Tony Cardenas. I don't mind saying it. Uh, I know we don't talk about it too much, you know, but I'm not going to endorse him. I, I, I like him. We work together. We've done some things together with Tony. He's actually opened up the youth development and the gang intervention piece. He's done some really great work. But I also, you know, I just keep my way from that. The politics that I do is what I call the social justice part. How to get people active towards social change. That to me is important. I just went to Occupy Wall Street at New York City. I was just there last Tuesday. Uh, uh, yeah, it was really great. I spoke to a, um, uh, a, a, a Dominican uh, high school, 500 kids. Uh, it was great. And then I went to Wall Street. Man, I was hanging out with them. I met people. I talked to people. In other words, I support people doing action that's positive, that's nonviolent. Because I don't think that's, what, that's what's going to help, but that also has a very strong, clear message and agenda. So um, some people will say, well, those, some of those people are kind of like hippies, they're kind of crazy. But my idea is that, you know what, they're taking a stand. They're doing a very good job. Uh, I, I'm, I'm totally for supporting anybody that begins to challenge the people who've been ripping us off all these years. Yes. They need to be challenged. So that's why I do what I do. One last okay, one last question. Yeah. Um, Luis, what advice can you give to the young kids that are now having the temptation mm -hmm. or uh, maybe influenced by gangs, having that all around them, having a hard time to fight both the lure of it and the threat of it? What advice could you give them to Well, it's, you know, when, when I was a kid, nobody could tell me nothing. So I know that it may not work, but I will say a few things. One is that anybody who's been through it, realizes that it is more of a trap. You feel love for your homies, you love your body, you give everything to the gang. It's, that's part of what it takes to be loyal and decent, and it's good. But then you start realizing that the very people you love aren't gonna be there for you 
I hate to say that. When I was sitting and facing the six-year prison sentence, I had no more homies. All my homies had died, and the rest of them were in worse shape than me. Um, nowadays, it's even worse, because even in my gang, we would never hurt each other. We wouldn't kill each other. Nowadays, they're all killing each other. My own homies are killing each other. Uh, because of all the taxation and all the pressures and all the politics, they're killing each other. It's ridiculous. They just killed one of my my my, my homies who was 50 some years old, like me, who spent 40 years in the barrio. He didn't want to pay taxes, so they broke into his house, shot him and his father. This is my own neighborhood. Yeah, because for selling drugs. So, in other words, money has become more important. It used to be the value you take care of each other. I'm telling you, it's not what it used to be. It's changed. I tell people, if they go in the pintas and the prisons and they think they're going to have, you can't trust anybody. I'm telling you. If you want to, you want to believe you can trust people, I'm going to tell you, you those are the guys that are going to come after you. My son will tell you because he's been there. Now, I didn't do all the time that he's done, but he will tell you. He'll, he's he's past, surpassed me. But he comes back and he says, Dad, can't trust nobody especially the ones that you thought you could trust who were going to be there for you. And he says the biggest thing he sees in the prisons is people ratting on everybody. It's just so much they don't care. You know, just ratting on people. It's everybody. They don't, it's no more code. You know, I'm not condoning the criminals that had a code, but at least if you had a code, that's something. Now there's a bunch of criminals and there's no code. Now, again, is that all bad? No, I think there's a lot of good young people in prisons. I think there's a lot of good artists and thinkers and poets. I go to prisons. I find amazing people. I find amazing people. But I'm telling you, the gang politics is not amazing. It's very painful and hurtful, and it doesn't really do justice to us. But the people themselves, the gang, the, the, even the gangsters, the prisoners, they're great people. I find that they're great people to work with. Thank you all very much. I'm going to sign some books. Hopefully you can buy some. Thank you for listening. Thank you so much. You have been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.